This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by... Business editor and columnist Greg Jefferson. Investigative reporter Brian Chasnow. Columnist editorial writer Kerry Clack. Against the backdrop of a brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine and coinciding with the first State of the Union address from President Joe Biden, Texas held its uh, midterm primary election on Tuesday. And there were some pretty dramatic results. I, I think the one that we'll probably start with was the one that's attracted the most attention in this community, which is the race for Bear County judge, the the contest to uh, re- replace Nelson Wolf, who's uh, decided to not seek another term. And we knew that the Republican nominee uh, for county judge would be uh, Trish DeBerry, and, and uh, sure enough, she is. But the real interest was the Democratic primary, where we had you know, three formidable candidates. We had former district court judge Peter Sakai, state representative Ina Minhadis, and former mayoral chief of staff Ivalice Mesa Gonzalez. Everyone I, I talked to seemed to have a different um, prediction on how this was going to go. And I tended to think it was going to be, you know, really pretty bunched up. As it turned out, uh, we do have a runoff, but Peter Sakai, uh, you know, had the uh, had a pretty strong plurality in this race. He got nearly 41% of the vote. Ina Minhadis will be in the runoff with him. She got nearly 31% of the vote. Ivalice Mesa-Gonzalez was a pretty distant third at, at about 19%. Uh, Greg, looking at these results, is there anything that surprised you about what happened there? No, I mean, I always kind of questioned the strength of uh, Mesa-Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she just didn't have the the, the presence that Peter Sakai had or Ina Minhadis. So I, I always thought it was kind of an uphill battle. She had a lot of key endorsements, including from Mayor Ron Nirenberg, but you know, it, it endorsements don't get you anywhere, really. Yeah. And I mean, you know, as as uh, as we know, uh, Ron Nirenberg's endorsements are kind of uh, hit and miss. Yeah, Rick Casey had a column about that the other day that there's a that there's the, the, the mayor the mayor's batting average isn't too high right now. Exactly. Yeah. And I think Rick, Rick was right on. <laughs> I think he was absolutely right about that. And once again, we see that, you know, we see it's true. Yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of sway. Uh, but yeah, so no, I mean, it's, it, it actually turned out kind of how I thought, although honestly, I thought Mina or, uh, you know, would would do a bit better. I thought she would be, I mm-hmm. thought they would be uh, closer and that I thought she might actually pull it out. I mean, as in not, not to avoid a runoff, but that she would maybe top Sakai, but you know, yeah. uh, 10 points in a runoff, you know, that's, it's almost negligible. It's an entirely yeah. new race at this point. Yeah. Well, Carrie, I mean, we, we know that in runoff elections, the turnout tends to be a lot lower. I mean, uh, often it's like maybe about half of what we see in a, in a, in a regular primary election. Um, where do you think the race stands between, between these two candidates? You know, it, it, you know, once Ivalice got in the race, it's kind of 
went the way we thought it would be, that there would be a runoff and that that Sakai would probably be at least one of the one of the uh, folks in the runoff. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised. Well, maybe not so much so that, you know, I think it is because of greater name recognition that he got off to such an early lead in the early voting. I think it was at 43 percent. Mm-hmm. But if you also look at election day voting, he also had a better ground game yeah. than, than Ina and Eva Lee. So although Ina wasn't, wasn't too bad either. So uh, I agree with Greg. It's a totally new game. And, uh, and again, excuse me, this isn't a race where, where you have, where there's anybody that's polarizing and I don't expect it to get particularly nasty, although you never yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, it will be because it's it, it's going to really be hard to find areas of disagreement between the two, um, and uh, you know, so if if you see negative campaigning, I mean, I'm I'm sure there, there will be some of that happening, but it's hard to see exactly what uh, where they would go with that. Um, one uh, one of the things that I I kind of paid special attention to uh, with all the primary races was mail voting results because we know that. Uh, Hmm. That SB one uh, has has really um, suppressed mail voting. It's I think it's uh, discouraged people from from doing it because they're worried that their ballot will be rejected. The whole process has become more difficult. So I've just kind of been paying attention to how different campaigns uh, did when it came to mail voting, and 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 Peter Sakai did well all the all the way around, as you pointed out, Carrie. I mean, he did well with early voting. He did well on election day. But with mail voting, uh, I mean, th- that really stood out to me. He got like more than 52% of the vote. And so um, I think that's, yeah. it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think that they, 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 they there were certain campaigns that you could tell um, put more of an emphasis on mail voting. And then some, uh, which we'll get to later, I mean, th- that uh, I think particularly on the Republican side where they maybe, um, maybe there's some, uh, dislike for the whole mail voting process and it, it probably hurt them in their in their campaigns. I want to talk a little bit about US District 28, um, which was probably the race in Texas that was attracting the most national attention from what I could tell. And this is because um, you know, you've got Henry Cuellar, a nine-term congressman from Laredo, who's kind of uh, emblematic of the maybe the old guard sort of centrist uh Democrat, his detractors would say corporate Democrat. Um, and um, and he's he was being challenged for the second time by Jessica Cisneros, an immigration attorney who is, you know, has the backing of the Justice Democrats. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a movement progressive. And so this the the sort of uh, conflict within the Democratic Party to define what the party will be going forward. I mean, you couldn't have a better um sort of a demonstration of that. And it's, it's also generational. She's 28 years old and, uh, and, you know, he's someone who's, who's been in politics for, for decades. The, the, uh, the result is that we're, we're going to have another round. We're going to, it's, we've got a, a runoff happening between them. a very close race, um, with the final numbers or we're probably still going to get some, some additional numbers, but it's, it's going to be a matter of a few hundred votes between them out of nearly 50,000 cast. And, um, so, you know, looking at this, uh, I mean, this is, I think anytime an incumbent, especially one as high profile as, as Henry Cuellar is, uh, has to go through a runoff, it's, it's a troubling sign for him. It, you know, Brian, what do you make of, of the dynamics in this race between Jessica Cisneros and Henry Cuellar? Well, I mean, of course, looming over everything is the 
FBI investigation or right. uh, you know raid of his home and his off of Cuellar's home and office, and I don't think that's been resolved, and I don't think much clarity has been brought to that at this stage, right? That's right. I, I mean, I, I think that uh, I mean that certainly gave Cisneros quite a quite an opening there, but I, I've noticed that Cuellar is is sticking sticking to his guns, and in a lot of ways, um, he he's noting that he's strong on, on border security. And I think he's, he's comfortable staking out positions that are much more centrist than, than Cisneros uh, with, you know, under the assumption that his constituency would relate to those, those more centrist positions. And so whether or not uh, someone who's a little more left than, than Cuellar can, can get traction is, is an open question in that in that district. I also think that I mean you have to look at the industries that are important to District 28. I mean the closer you get to the border, the more important oil and gas becomes. I do think, and that's that's been a strength of Henry Cisner, <laughs> pardon me, Henry Cuellar. I do that too for yeah. his nine terms. I mean he's been you know he's been heavily supported by oil and gas companies and their executives. And he's been very friendly to the industry. It's a big employer in South Texas. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, rig workers and a lot of people involved in oil field services. And the idea of, you know, basically of a green energy plan, as as Jessica Cisnano supports, that's you know, it's scary. I mean, it's they're they're con- they're concerned about their jobs, and you know, I think. That accounts for some of Cuellar's support in the Laredo area. I mean, I think you just can't get around that. Being that we're that there's so much international attention now on the the Russian invasion of Ukraine mm-hmm. and how that's because there uh, are sanctions that are being imposed by the United States and other countries against against Russia. There is a lot of concern about how this is going to affect uh, oil supply from Russia to other countries. Um, w- will Henry Cuellar? Do you think in the runoff? make an issue of the sort of fragility of our energy supply at this time um, uh, and and how she might uh, she might be a, a dangerous choice for that reason. I think you just gave him a talking point there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Politically speaking, it would be well, I mean it would be stupid of him not to do that. <laughs> I mean honestly, I mean we've seen uh, you know the the price of oil uh, exceed, you know, $100 a barrel. That hasn't happened in a very long time and it's because of all the concern about, you know, energy security. And, you know, you have when when oil hits that level, I mean, you can expect, uh, you know, a lot more drilling and production activity in the Eagle Fort Shale, which is in South Texas. I mean, the problem, it takes a while to ramp up that kind of production and that kind of exploration. But, you know, if if oil prices stay where they're at or even close, you're, you're going to see more drilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, that's that's going to benefit Henry Cuellar. But in the short term, I mean, that's not going to be apparent, but he definitely will be talking about, you know, the the nation's oil security and the need to increase production within the United States. Now, I was going to say this. I also remember why there's a runoff. There was a third candidate in there, uh, Ben right. She got almost 5% of the vote. So, you know, if you, I mean, so you know, technically, not technically, rea- then the reality is, is that the, that the incumbent didn't get a majority of the vote. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I mean, you, you would you would you would assume, although you can't always do that, that most of the folks who went for Benavides would go for Cisneros. Yeah, 
But uh, to be honest, I, I there was a point when I thought that she was going to win somewhat handily. Yeah, that, it looked really good early on. Yeah, for I mean, if she she can't unseat him with an FBI search hanging (laughs) (laughs) hanging over him. I'm not sure that it's ever going to happen. Like if it doesn't happen this year and he survives, I mean, God bless you and good luck going into, you know, 2024. (laughs) No, I think that's right. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me is that the dynamics were so different from two years ago when she ran, she got within 4% then. As Brian pointed out, we've got the mm. FBI raid. We don't know where that's going to lead. We, I mean, we could see another shoe drop between now and, and the runoff. We don't know. Um, that was a, a presidential year, bigger turnout uh, versus a midterm this time. And also, this was a different district map. Um, and still, the results were pretty similar, although she got a little closer this time. But one thing that was really interesting to me was that you had more votes added in Bear County through the redistricting process. You had Guadalupe County added to the district that was not part of the district before. And she dominated in, in Guadalupe County. She got, I think about 72, 73% last I checked. So that was really uh, a big benefit to her. And I think that when, when you look at this race, it's kind of the story of these dominant dis, uh, counties for Jessica Cisneros, Bear County, Guadalupe County. And for uh, Henry Cuellar, you've got Webb County and Star County. And, uh, it's just they they're both putting up big numbers in those in those counties and it's kind of trying to see how it all how it all shakes out i will say and this might be a counterintuitive point but when you have smaller turnout in a runoff i i look at this and i think jessica cisneros supporters they're going to come out they're not casual voters they're not they they're not just people who maybe decided to vote in the primary and then they they looked at the district 28 um vote election on the ballot and then, you know, tried to assess that they're going to make a, a special effort to go out there to vote for her because they, these are really passionate, idealistic voters. And my gut feeling is that in a, in a low turnout election, when you know your supporters are going to come out because they're determined to unseat this congressman that they've been wanting to unseat for a while. Um, I just think that that's going to be beneficial to her. I'm not saying that that's, she's going to win, but I just, I just would look at that and think that that would potentially be beneficial to her. I think it's a great point. And it, and it goes back again to what Greg said. I mean, if, if you can't take them out now, uh, combined with the passion of her supporters, then, then she can never take them out. And I would say, I, w- I would guess that Cuellar is going to counter that with, uh, you know, probably a good deal of fear. <laughs> I mean, we talked about how he's he's likely to talk about uh, the importance of energy security is probably going to be a little more pointed than that, as in, hey, she's coming for our oil field jobs. She she will be a jobs killer. I'm a jobs protector. I would I would I would just guess we're going to hear a lot of that coming from Cuellar's campaign. The uh, the other uh, San Antonio uh, based congressional district that um, we were looking at was which was an open seat u.s district 35 the seat that lloyd doggett uh, uh vacated yeah. um this one was really a route uh, it, uh wow. greg kassar yeah. uh, the former austin council member um was running against uh, state representative eddie rodriguez and former san antonio councilwoman rebecca Villagran. and greg kassar uh got about 61 percent of the vote i you know his people in his campaign were very optimistic that he would do well but they thought it could be kind of touch and go as far as whether he'd need a runoff or not. And uh, 
that didn't happen. Rebe- Rebecca Villagran was uh, finished in third place at about 15.5%. Um, any thoughts on, on, on this? Any, any, but he's surprised. I think we we all had a sense that he'd do he'd do well. Was anybody surprised by the outcome there? I was surprised by the margin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he came out early, and he was. I mean, I think uh, Greg Kassar, uh, showed himself to be a very energetic uh, campaigner. I mean, he seemed to be everywhere for a while. And like I said, he he came out early. He he lined up as many endorsements early on as he could, and he was just hungry for it. And I, I think. Uh, I'm not surprised that he won with that. I, I am surprised that he got, you know, 61%. I'm not yeah. surprised that he avoided a runoff. He he really worked it. Well, it's a Lloyd Doggett thing. You know, Lloyd Doggett, as soon as he realized a decade ago that he was going to be uh, representing a district that included San Antonio, I mean, he was, uh, you, could, <laughs> you couldn't you uh, could walk a, a block he in San Antonio everywhere. without bumping into him, you know? And <laughs> so uh, he, he and, uh, he and Joaquin Castro were, we're that's right. It out for, that's for right. a little while there. Yeah. And so he was, he, yeah, that's right. He was going to face Joaquin Castro. And so that for, uh, yeah. early on. And so, yeah, he just worked San Antonio and Greg Kassar, you know, he had a former San Antonio councilwoman on the ballot with him and he, he actually was the biggest vote getter in San Antonio in, in that district. And I think that said a lot. And then conversely, yeah. Rebecca Villagran, uh, you know, got about 5% in, in Austin was just, you know, just did not really register in Austin at all, which, you know, it's not a big surprise, but the fact that Kassar, I think he'd been building, you know, he had become kind of a progressive hero to, you know, to a lot of, um, you know, people in the movement in San Antonio as well as Austin. So they knew him and he, you know, he, he put a lot of work into that campaign. Um, I wanted to mention the, um, the race for Texas House District 122, which is the seat that Lyle Larson uh, is vacating because he decided not to seek another term. And I mentioned this on Twitter last night, but I wanted to say it on the podcast too. If there was one candidate in this primary election that I completely underestimated, it was Lisa Chan. The former councilwoman, um, Northside, had, uh, she left city council in 2013 to run for state senate, ended up losing in the Republican primary to uh, Donna Campbell had not been involved in politics for eight years. I really did not think that there, that she had a, a great chance in this race. Um, there were, there were four candidates. One of them, Adam Blanchard had this, uh, the endorsement of Lyle Larson. He did really well with fundraising. He's uh, had a lot of support in the business community. He finished third. Um, there's going to be a runoff and it's going to be at least a chance. She got 37% of the vote and Mark DeRazio, um, the former Republican party chair, uh, finished second with 27.5%. Brian, I, I look to you as the, the authority on Lisa Chan. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was the, interesting that <laughs> that's maybe not the title that you want, I mean, but uh, <laughs> what help us, help us understand. Well, I mean, that, that was one of my first columns when I, when I began writing columns, I think back in 2012, was, uh, you know, someone leaked a secret recording of Elisa Chan at City Hall in a, you know, a meeting with her staff uh, disparaging the LGBTQ community right before the a vote on the city's new non-discrimination ordinance. And it's interesting how that is now a fairly prominent footnote to her career. I mean, it was mentioned in the the story today, uh, the election story. But yeah. I mean, like you said, it doesn't seem to, it didn't seem to have much of a deterrent effect on, on voters. So, um, and, and, you know, I mean, as far as her, I, I don't remember her being beyond, beyond that, you know, 
scandal slash controversy, whatever you want to call it. I don't recall her being an, a particularly effective councilwoman. I mean, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but she she was part of a part of the you know the the conservative minority on on council back then. That yeah, that's right could never really get much traction. Yeah, I mean, I think Julian Castro, who was the mayor at the time, I mean, I think he took extraordinary steps to marginalize her. Uh, and this was before, you know, this was before the controversy of the over the recording. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I think his his strategy in containing her was was pretty pretty clear. And yeah, I mean, she wasn't very effective. Would she have been under a different mayor? Maybe we'll not know. I mean, we'll we'll never really know. I guess. Right. Right. So, so uh, yeah, I'm not, I mean, I, and I did not follow that race very closely, so I don't know why she, she got so much traction in that race. Does, does anyone have any theories? I mean, it's, it's Please. a Republican primary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, look at the state of the, I mean, really, I mean, honestly, look at the state of the Texas Republican party. And can we, can we really be surprised that Adam Blanchard didn't do as well as he did? I mean, yep. you know, he, he was a moderate candidate, um, and he had business support, but like when when was the last time that that really helped a candidate in a Republican primary? I know that's that's an that's an, that's the old school formula, but it doesn't you know yeah I mean I don't know if getting business the right. business support being seen as kind of just you know small government pro business you know low taxes and just I mean there has to be some. Uh, some component, I think of, you know, and I'm not saying that I, that this race was necessarily dominated by, by culture wars, but I mean, that, that is such a key component of, of the, and one of the things that's interesting about this is to that Mark DeRazio, the, the other person in this runoff with Lisa Chan, I mean, he's the person basically who convinced, um, Nico LaHood not to run for a uh, former district, not yeah. to run in this primary. Nico LaHood had decided that he was going to, he was going to compete for the seat and he met with Mark DeRazio and concluded that they shared similar values. I think we Christian values, I think is, you know, that he, he decided that, that they were on the same page on a lot of these, the issues that were important to him. And so he would step aside and maybe run for something else down the line. Yeah. DeRazio also, cause uh, you know, Chad didn't meet with the editorial board. It was uh, Blanchard and DeRazio. And I mean, Blanchard is obviously very conservative, but yeah, of those three, he is the the least conservative. And, you know, we asked all the candidates about who, you know, did they think that, that Joe Biden was the legitimately elected president? Blanchard, Blanchard gave an answer, which was yes, but it was also obvious that he was concerned about how it would look mm-hmm. uh, with his district, whereas DeRazio gave one of the wilder answers i just leave it at that so okay <laughs> well on that note that kind of leads me into the the final race i went to talk about which was the republican race for attorney general this is the one statewide race that i think probably grabbed the most attention uh from from a lot of us um you had uh ken paxton who has pretty much spent his entire time as a, as a texas attorney general uh under indictment and uh, somehow has, has survived for eight years uh and basically and and pretty much devotes his job to just filing like frivolous lawsuits against the federal government. But that's how he's defined the job. And he was running, uh, he was being challenged by uh, Land Commissioner George P. Bush and former Supreme Court uh, Justice Eva Guzman. You also had Congressman Louis Gohmert in there. It was a it was a pretty wild race. And getting back to Kerry's point about the question of whether uh, Joe Biden actually won the 2020 election, uh, Ken Paxton didn't participate in uh 
these debates between the Republican candidates. He didn't show up for these uh, various debates. But you had a debate last week where the three challengers were all asked, did Joe Biden win the 2020 election? And uh, in one of the more more depressing uh, scenes that I've that I've witnessed in politics for a while, you had uh, George P. Bush raised his hand. Uh, and said, yes, I think he might've regretted instantly that he raised his hand. It might've been like the kid in class who raised their hand and then, and then thought, I, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, and, uh, Eva Guzman said it's undetermined, but he's the president. And Louis Gohmert said, I don't know. I don't know if he won or not. So it's, it's really, it's how in the world it's become a litmus test in the Republican party. Like if you have to say, either that Biden did not actually win the election or that you're not sure about it. You can't say that he won, that he legitimately won because you're otherwise, you know, it's, it's, it's a political death sentence for you. So I, I have to say that, uh, uh, Ken Paxton is, is going to be uh, in a runoff now with George P. Bush. Um, and I'd say I was pretty disappointed with Eva Guzman's campaign. I think the fact that she, uh, you know, that moment I think was, was a bad moment for her. I think also, you know, she was getting attacked a lot by George P. Bush, who sensed that she was probably his biggest challenge to getting into a runoff. And so he was saying, well, I'm going to finish Trump's border wall and I'm going to do that. And he was talking about a lot of stuff that really had nothing to do with being attorney general. And then so she was saying, well, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to build a wall. And Ken Paxton is only attacking me because he hasn't been able to keep critical race theory out of the schools. I mean, it was just getting into all kinds of nonsense, um, which in the end didn't didn't pay off for her. But now we're looking at Ken Paxton versus George P. Bush in the race to see. George P. Bush apparently is reaching out to the Trump campaign to see if they'll reconsider their endorsement of Paxton and endorse him. So it's going to be a race to see who can be Trumpier. Uh, Kerry, what do, what do you make of this? I, I, I agree with you about Guzman. Uh, we, we endorsed her. And uh, and again, when it came to that question, she, she said she was, she was more definitive than she was in the debate. Yeah. But uh, there was she was there was but she was also saying things which led you to believe that she was, again, trying to figure out how this would look to a base. So we pushed her a little bit on this. And 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 it's a new point now since she's not since she's out of the race. But she she did say, I've got to get out of the primary. Mm-hmm. And I'm the same with you, Gil. But when I saw the, the debate, I, it was even it was it was worse. And then she's the one that brought up critical race theory and, and all that stuff. Um uh, mm-hmm. To me, she was clearly she's clearly the the best of the candidates. I agree. But there's something about also having there's that there's that balance between you having the courage of your convictions and also being pragmatic. Mm-hmm. And I guess she went with being pragmatic, and it still didn't work for her. But it's it's laughable. It's it's sad, but it's laughable. It really that is. Ken Paxton is, is, <laughs> is in the position he is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically you know it's like uh, when 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 uh, after nuclear annihilation and there's, there's nothing left, it's going to, it's going to be cockroaches share and Ken Paxton, I think, you know, but, uh, left. And George but, uh, P. I mean, <laughs> I mean, George P going after Trump's vote again. I mean, after he had already, he what he's done to his family, what he said about his, his father, uh, yeah. and then Trump, you know, goes and endorses Paxton. He's going to go after him again. I mean, come on, man. 
Come on. This, this race really tells you so much about how pol- politics changes people and how it, it, it changes the, the nature of the race. Because again, I'd like to believe Eva Guzman in a different political climate, maybe at a different time would have run uh, uh, a more high minded campaign. Um, and, and I, I do understand that she was getting uh, attacked on a lot of these culture war issues. And so she was felt like the only way to try to survive the primary was to kind of, you know, to, to fight along those lines. Um, George P. Bush, I've never really had a sense of what he stands for. Um, it feels to me like he's pandered so much to the Trump crowd and I, I'm not, I would like to know, you know, what he really, what his real values are, but I think that he's very much a product. He's let the, the times shape him rather than making any effort to try to, uh, you know, shape the, the times. So, um, it's, it, it, this race is kind of a, I, th- I think was, was kind of a really sorry example of, of where thing, where things stand in, 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 in that party. And I think that's why you see people like Lyle, Lyle Larson and Joe Strauss and others with long histories in the Republican party, just, just kind of shaking their heads at, at, at what's happening there. Well, I think on that note, um, <laughs> I have a, I have a tendency to end on, on bleak, bleak notes, but um, I'll try to change that going forward. But um, we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a lot more uh, on on the the runoffs because it, it's it really will be fascinating. You know, uh, we're gonna be looking at in the next few weeks. So, want to thank all of you for listening. Hope everyone's doing well, and we'll be back next week. Take care.